This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. If you would turn to uh, Matthew 24, and let's, uh, let's pray. Father, again, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and Lord, again, we want to thank you. Lord, uh, again, we look to you as we open your word before us, and just look to you to feed us, Father, to open our understanding to the truth uh, that we're dealing with in this passage. I ask that you enable me to deliver the message you would have delivered here. Lord, open all of our ears to hear. Lord, we pray that uh, this text will move us, Lord, so that we have a greater desire, greater longing for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts cry be like that of John. Even so, Lord, come. Lord, may our lives be given over to you as a sweet-smelling savor. May our bodies be living sacrifices holy unto you. All for your glory and honor and praise. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, what I tried to do this morning, um, and I gave a little bit of an explanation before I started, because uh, I think I think if you if you heard the message without um, without hearing the little bit of explanation that I gave, um, that you might not uh, think I was preaching on this passage. <laughs> but what I tried to do this morning was uh, just kind of set the stage. Um, and, and what I wanted to do was just get the, the context uh, of, the, of this passage, the context that it, it's given to us in, um, what, what was going on in the time that, that Jesus uh, gave this discourse that we know as the Olivet Discourse. So I told you I was going to give a little opportunity for questions. I'm, I'm going to ask if there are questions at this point, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Amen. No questions, huh? All right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the whole chapter this time and then come back and and, uh, work our way through it. Verse 1, chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, 
and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear... In heaven, the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but 
my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Well, I said this morning, um, again, the, the immediate context before this is Jesus dealing with hypocrites, right? And then just after this, he goes on to give exhortations about being ready. And by the way, I think that's the purpose behind this whole uh, discourse that we just read. Um, there are... Truths in it concerning the true nature of the kingdom. And again, exhortation for his disciples. And remember at this point, he's, he's speaking to the disciples privately. But uh, exhortations to the disciples to be ready for his coming, for his return, and for the end of the age. Exhortations to not be like the hypocrites. And so then, again, in chapter 25, that continues. And then at the end of that chapter, you've got a description of his actual coming in the judgment day. So this is in the context of all of that, and Jesus is uh, giving us information to help us um, recognize the times that we're in and to, uh, to help us be ready for his coming. Now, again, there's a lot of false con- conceptions here about what the kingdom is about. And so all the way through the book of Matthew, what we've been seeing is Matthew uh, presenting Jesus as king, as Messiah, and talking about the true nature of the kingdom. And this is what the scribes and Pharisees uh, have rejected and been uh, condemned for. 
Now here, uh, I want to go back to the questions that the disciples raised, and then we'll just kind of walk through this. Uh, remember, I said this morning, there are two, two main questions primarily. When will these things be? That specifically um, referring to the destruction of the temple, because that's, that's what Jesus has just announced in the first, first two verses. <clears throat> when will these things be in verse 3? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So that's what Jesus is answering. When is the destruction of the temple going to take place? And then secondly, what are the signs of your coming and of the close of the age? And I think uh, probably in their mind, when they, when they ask what is the sign of your coming, what they, what they have in mind is uh, him. I'm not, I'm not sure they're thinking ahead like, like we do now and think about his coming in power and glory uh, you know, and then judgment day and, and then the, uh, uh, the, the eternal state. They just know that he's the Messiah, Messiah and he's going to rule. In other words, what I'm saying is I'm not sure they have a good grasp of the fact that he's leaving. You know, he, he's announced that several times, but um, they, they, don't, they don't have a good grasp. They don't have a good handle on that. They're puzzled by that. So I'm not really sure that they understand that he's leaving so when they say, when are you coming, I'm, I'm not sure they're thinking about a second coming. They just mean, when are you going to establish the kingdom? When are you going to manifest who you really are? But in Jesus' answer, of course, he's talking about, uh, yes, when he's going, going to uh, establish his eternal rule, but he's talking about his second coming. He's going to leave and then he's going to return. So, again, the question, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple? And what will be the sign of, of your coming and of the close of the age? Now, Jesus answers in verse 4. See that no one leads you astray. Now, I've always found that fascinating um, that, that he starts with that warning. And again, I, I think that's Jesus' primary concern here for his disciples. He's giving us information. It's, it's an exhortation to keep our focus on him. Don't let anybody lead you astray. Um, that's interesting, isn't it? In, in a, I mean, to be right there at the beginning of, the pas- of a passage over which there is so much... Uh, <laughs> so, so many uh, dif- different imp- interpretations and, and uh, approaches to, and frankly, uh, which it seems to me some people use to lead people astray. And the very first thing he says is, don't be led astray. That's the danger. So I think Jesus is anticipating uh, the fact that they don't know a lot of things that's gonna, that are going to play out. They're thinking this is... What are we talking about? Days here? When are you coming? Is it going to be a couple more months? Is it six months down the road? When are you going to show the world you're the Messiah? And Jesus knows that there's, well, at least 2,000 years um, that we're looking at and events that have to play out over the course of that period. And so he says, see, that is look, see to it that no one leads you astray. And that's exactly what he says is going to happen in verse 11 to many. 
Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So again, verse 4. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ. And they will lead many astray. Again, here. And you will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. So the wars and the rumors of wars. Um, and by the way, it's been going on since the, since the beginning of, of history. Um, it's pretty much uh, uh, the norm for what goes on in the world. Jesus is saying that's, that's not a sign of, of the end. The end is not yet. But these things must take place and don't be, don't be led astray while it's happening. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, let me say a couple things here. Um, I think what we, we see for the most part in chapter 24, for the most part, is an answer to that first question. When is the temple going to be destroyed? Now, here's where the difficulty lies, and I'll try to, I'll try to deal with this as we move along. But um, some of what Jesus says seems to go beyond that period, uh, their lifetime. And, and sometimes it gets a little, uh, a little hard to, uh, uh, at least in my mind, and I don't think I'm alone, but sometimes it gets a little hard to decipher exactly uh, what goes where. But this, this we know for, for sure from, from history. Jesus makes a prediction here um, that judgment's going to come on Jerusalem. We read this morning the last part of uh, chapter 23 again. He says, all these things will come upon this generation, chapter 23, verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. He's talking specifically to Jerusalem there. He cries out in, in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And then he makes the statement in uh, the beginning of chapter 24 that you see all these beautiful buildings, the temple that is, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. Verse 2. So he's talking about judgment coming upon Jerusalem. The disciples say, when is this going to happen? And Jesus says, well, it's going to, it's going to play out this way. There are going to be many. This is going to be over a period of time. This is going to be progressive. It's, going to be a, uh, uh, it's, it's not going to be an immediate thing. But there's, there are going to be false Christ coming to my name. There are going to be wars, rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. Now, again, I, I think... All of these things he's saying in the context of this question, when, when will these things be? <clears throat> One commentator noted that for Jesus to say, just to make this point, for Jesus to say that there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, well, if we're speaking worldwide here, that's something that's always been. So it wouldn't seem like he's... he's He's giving them anything to go by. That's, that's the way it's always been. I, I think what he's saying, again, he's speaking specifically of the destruction of Jerusalem, the, fall, the, uh, the destruction of the temple, God's judgment coming upon Israel. And so he says, look, this, this is what's going to happen. In Israel, if I can paraphrase, in Jerusalem, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and we know that this happened historically. 
don't be alarmed. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows, our birth pains. And this is one reason uh, I should have mentioned this morning, but I'm reading here from the English Standard Version. And that, that word there, translated sorrows in the King James, is birth pains. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Now, I, I, I infer from that, and, and this is an inference, so you, 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 may, uh, you may think, yeah, that sounds correct, or you may think that's, that doesn't sound right. But the fact that Jesus calls these signs, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes in various places, um, and then refers to them as the beginning of birth pains, seems to me to indicate a process, a process, and, and uh, any woman that's had a child can identify with this, a process that increases in, in when we're talking about the pains, increases in frequency and in intensity. So I think, from the way Jesus describes this, he's talking about a period in which all of these things that he describes here, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes in various places, all of these things that have always happened may... And I emphasize that word, but may increase in frequency and in intensity as the end draws near. All these things are but the beginning. These things are not the end. They are but the beginning of a long process. And what's going to happen during that process? Well, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Now, notice that word. He's talking privately to the disciples here. And again, as I said, he, he seems to me to... Uh, I, I think when, when Jesus looks at this, it seems to me, it's almost like when, when you look at passages in the Old Testament, and they, you, you read uh, about the day of the Lord. And the events there are, are, are more than a 24-hour day. They span over a period of time. We could say, um, and we talk about countries or empires having their day. And we don't mean that they, they were in power for one 24-hour period. We mean they had a period of time in which, you know, they ruled, that those things took place. And it seems to me that that's the way the Lord is looking at these things, so that he keeps spanning this period. He talks about specific, specific things that are going to take place in Jerusalem in the very near future, and along with that, at the same time, he's seeing things distantly. So he can talk about imminent judgment, imminent catastrophes like earthquakes, famines, and at the same time say these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so there he's looking out long term. This is just the beginning of a process that as time grows to its close, the end of the age will intensify and become more frequent. So, he drops back again. I think here he's talking about the immediate future. Verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation. And again, note that word because it's important. 
They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Who? Well, he's talking specifically here to the disciples. And we see this begin to play out in the book of Acts. Some of them, like like James, um, we have his death recorded. He was put to death by Herod. Some of them we we uh, we have pretty reliable sources. We know from from uh, tradition, but but these things happened. And when Paul exhorted uh, other disciples, he he told them it is through much tribulation. Use the same word through much tribulation that we enter in. So Jesus says they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So I think what we, we have there in verses 9 through 14, in fact, I'm going to give you two possibilities here. <clears throat> but in verses 9 through 14, I think he spans that whole period again, it seems. So you've got immediate tribulation that the disciples are going, going to encounter, encounter all the way out to verse 14, the end of verse 14, all the way out to the end. And he says, those who endure to the end shall be saved. Now, um, that passage, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, may be referring to, uh, again, he's speaking privately to the disciples, may be referring to the, the imminent judgment coming upon the nation of Israel. Uh, certainly, we're going to see some things further down that, that I think apply uh, to that event. And he could be just talking about Christians throughout the ages, and all who endure to the end will be saved. I, either way, I think it's fitting, and, and it makes, makes sense. In verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, let me, let me ask a question here. I told you I was going to give you two views on these few verses here. <clears throat> There is one qualifier that Jesus gives, that Jesus says, this must happen before the end comes. In other words, the, the, we've got wars, rumors of wars, famines, and so forth. But he says, the end's not yet. And that's just the beginning of birth pains. It's the beginning of a process. But then, he says, the gospel of the kingdom must go out into the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So he gives that as a, as a qualifier and, and a, a condition Saying that after that, that's like that's that's when it's complete. That's when it's done. Nothing else needs to happen. Then the end will come. So let me ask you this question. This uh, real question, if you want to answer it. And I mentioned a moment ago when Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple. That came to pass in the first century, in 70 A.D. Titus led the Roman army. Um, and destroyed, sacked Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed, just, just like Jesus said it would be. So that took place. That was fulfilled within the lifetime of this generation. Remember in chapter 23, Jesus said, 
um, that these things are going to come on this generation. And here in uh, chapter 24 also, um, all of these things will come on this generation. All right, so here's the question. If chapter 24 is, is just referring to the end of a, yeah, y'all have to, uh, having problems with the, with the sound, so um, try to ignore that if you can, unless it starts squealing bad or something, which I don't think that's going to happen, but <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, if, if all of chapter 24 is referring only to events, that will take place in the first century, along with the destruction of the temple. And the end there in verse 14 just means the end of an era. In other words, the the Old Testament era comes to an end, and the New Testament um, reign of Christ through the church begins. Let me just throw that out as a possibility. Well, one thing that has to happen for that end to come is... That the gospel of the kingdom has to be proclaimed throughout the whole world. So here's the question. Has, did that happen during the first century? Anybody? No. Everybody says no? Yes? He does. Very good. Very good. Uh, he, a- he actually says that in, in Colossians 1 and also in Romans 10. Um, in fact, let's look at those real quick. So, um, my answer would be, well, yes and no. Um, and I'll probably explain that in a minute. I know. I'm not supposed to ride the fence, right? Okay. Um Let's look first at uh, Colossians 1, 3. Let's see. And then he's going to say it further down. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Yeah. Okay, let's start with verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come. Here's one of the one of the key verses, verse six, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So, Paul says here in verse 6 that the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. And then look down um, in verse 23, uh, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of uh, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith um, men if you're at the uh, 
at the uh, meeting yesterday morning, there's a parallel passage for Hebrews uh, 3.14. Um, in order that we discussed yesterday, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, why does Paul say that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, and that it has been preached throughout all creation? Uh, did, did, we have, did they have missionaries, for example, in North America preaching the gospel? Did they have missionaries in South America and places like Puerto Rico or um, you name it, just name anywhere around. Did they? Have, I don't think so. Didn't even know it was there. That's, yeah, that's one, that's one way of interpreting it, and I think that's that's uh, that's not a bad way. He, he he could mean throughout the known world. And now, think for one minute. There you go. That's another way. I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. Um, but but he, if if he's speaking geographically, then it would be like like Dan was saying the known world. And if you think for a minute about all of the ground that Paul covered, now there were eleven more guys out there as well, and they weren't all going the same direction. Um, in fact, you know, just one example. We just from we don't know because it's not in scripture, but from tradition, supposedly Thomas went into India. Okay, so he's evangelizing India supposedly. Paul's going into places like Spain, and or at least he desired to, and and he's he's dealing with the people in Rome. Peter's in Rome, supposedly. Um, so you look at the you look at the Book of Acts and and the the. I guess you could say the square mileage that Paul covered is astounding. And remember, there are 11 more guys. Of course, it's not only 11 because there are a whole lot of other guys like Philip and Stephen who are out there, too. Uh, Stephen had been martyred, but, but he, was, he had started out preaching the gospel. And there were other guys doing the same thing. So we don't know how many, but at least 11 more apostles doing likewise. So I'm just going to assume... They covered a lot of ground. But I think probably the more proper way to understand it would be what Paula was referring to. And that is that Paul just means that it's not being held back anymore. It's, it's not being preached only to the Jews anymore. He's saying we're purposely, purposely taking this message to all peoples. So it's going out and bearing fruit in all the world. And you see... The, uh, the first fruits of that on the day of Pentecost, because you have a mixture of people there. And then from there, it goes to Samaria. And then from there to the uttermost parts, you know, Paul's missionary trips and, for example, into modern day Turkey and so forth. So uh, I, I think probably what he has in mind is all of the world, meaning all people groups. It's, it's, we're not just preaching to the Jews. We're preaching to all of creation, everybody. And he makes a similar statement. In, uh, in the book of, in, uh, in Romans 10, incidentally, saying that the gospel, the sound of the gospel has gone out into all the world. So, yes, in one sense, we could say that was accomplished 
in the first century. I mean, I would have no problem interpreting it that way, except that, again in verse 14, uh, Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It seems to me from the from the rest of the, the context here that when Jesus talks about the end, he's talking about the end and not just the end of the Old Testament era. Although, um, although he is he is referring to this transition that's taking place that I was trying to describe this morning. So he is talking about something new happening. The temple, which was the center of worship, is going to go away. And that is not only because of God's judgment, but it's because the New Testament error is, is being ushered in and there's not going to be any more use for the temple. All right, so there's a transition taking place from Old Covenant to New Covenant. So Jesus, I think, definitely has that in mind. But when he says the end, I think he means the end. Not, not the end of the Old Covenant, but the end of the age, meaning um, the judgment, the final judgment. So I wouldn't have any problem interpreting uh, the first part of that verse as he simply means it's going out to all nations. It's going out to all peoples. But when he says, and then the end will come, I think he means the very end. So maybe he does mean the gospel is going to go out around the globe. Now, that, that's certainly the way that it is uh, uh, usually interpreted today, uh, maybe, maybe in part just because uh, we, we've made, over the centuries, we've, we've made quite a bit of progress uh, toward that end. Uh, so that's the way we tend to think of it. But that's probably correct. Uh, and that has to happen, Jesus says, before the end will come. Um, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet, unless... Unless, again, he just means it's going to be opened up to all people. Okay? I'm not trying to confuse you there. I'm just trying to say there are different, different views. Okay. So, verse 15. Now he goes back again. Like I say, to me, it's like he looks at from what's going to happen now all the way out. And that seems to be the pattern here. So now he goes back again. So when you see, verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. Look, I'm going to... Where'd the time go? I'm going to make this promise to you. Our our admission, let's say it that way, confession. I'm not going to have all the answers here, I guarantee you. But, I'm going to tell you this, it is profitable to search it out and try to find them. Jesus tells us in the text, let the reader understand. So does that mean we'll walk away perfectly understanding everything in this passage? I don't think so, but I think what he's saying is the main point that he's getting across is apprehendable. And he wants us to get it. It's similar in the book of Revelation. A lot of people think it's a waste of time to study the book of Revelation because, well, it's just, there's just so much imagery and symbolism and, and, and there, you know, there are 50 different views out there at least. You talk to 50 different people, you get 50 different views. It, it's just, I, I could be studying the Gospels. I'm wasting my time studying Revelation. Well, 
The problem is there's, a, there's even a blessing pronounced on those who read and understand. So the Lord encourages us to study it out and understand. Seek understanding. So Jesus says, let the reader understand. And this is what we're trying to do here. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, long story short here, I think he's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem here. The abomination of desolation, Luke Luke describes it as Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Now, I know you say, and there, there are a lot of people out there who say, well, it looks like that's going to happen any day now. Well, it might, but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. At least not unless it has, sorry to say, dual fulfillment, but actually it would be uh, uh, whatever the word is for three times. Um, triple fulfillment? Yeah, I was trying to think of something more fancy than that, I guess, but yeah. <laughs> You know, you always had these bi and tri and quad and all that, but okay, triple, we'll go with that. <laughs> Say, when was the first one? Now, this, this is interesting. Because this, this, this phraseology comes from the book of Daniel. And it seems to have been fulfilled uh, by, by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, who again uh, marched in Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. In fact, uh, you know, and this is before Christ, B.C. I don't remember the year. Anybody know the year, Robert? Or, or I don't know what year it was, but it was a couple hundred years, I guess, at least before Christ. Uh, it's during the Maccabean Wars. Um, but Antiochus and uh, Epiphanes, and I'm probably butchering his name, but you know, since he's not here, he won't mind. Um, <laughs> He goes into Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple. In fact, uh, it's according to tradition, he, he offered swine on the altar. Well, you know, if you were living during that day, you would say, okay, what we're seeing is the abomination of, of desolation that Daniel spoke about. But, but here, Jesus is... A couple hundred years later, still talking about it as though it's future tense. But maybe that was a fulfillment with Antiochus Epiphanes. I, I, it makes sense to me. Maybe it has more than one fulfillment. Maybe that just kind of foreshadows this one. If so, that may open the possibility that this one foreshadows another one. Maybe that's maybe maybe the ultimate one is what Paul is describing in Thessalonians when the man of sin sits in the temple as God, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, we don't have time to go into all that tonight. But at any rate, I, I, I think whether or not it has a still yet a future fulfillment, I would say it seems to. Jesus is definitely talking about. In my view, Jesus is definitely referring to Titus the army of Titus that destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. And I think that's why Luke phrases it the way he does. He's telling those people who are alive at at that time, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, head for the hills. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. And that's what Jesus says here. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let those who are on the housetop not go down, take what is in the house. Let, let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. As for, for uh, women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing in, infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in uh, winter or on the Sabbath. And by the way, if, if this were speaking about uh, an event that is still future for us, I mean, if it were just that and only that, I'm not sure a lot of these instructions would, would, uh, would be applicable. For example, Jesus says, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Why would that matter to Christians in 2012 or beyond? Right. Right. They, that's right. That's it. But it mattered to them in first century Jerusalem. So he's, uh, he's talking definitely about the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, so he says, goes on to say, for then, verse 21, then there will be great tribulation. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Now, it, it, it does seem to me, if I was, if I was correct earlier, in, in understanding G, Jesus' use of the birth pains analogy as, as, as describing a, a process where eventually the pains get more frequent and they get more intense. And so, you know, the, the, the natural disasters and the man-made disasters get more frequent and they get more intense and the judgment gets more frequent and more intense. And so the tribulation, the persecution on the people gets more frequent and more intense. If, if I was understanding that correctly, then it does seem to me reasonable, and, and there are other, other reasons I say this as well, other passages, but it does seem to me to be reasonable to think there is a, a time of extreme tribulation yet to come. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, that does make sense to me if I'm understanding the birth pains thing correctly. But, but I want to emphasize this. Go back for just a minute to verse 9. He's speaking to the disciples here about what is going to happen to them. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation. Same word, same word. They will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations. It's the same word over in Acts when Paul says, it's through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom. Speaking to every Christian that he's dealing with there. So what I'm saying is this. John 16.33, Jesus said, in the world, speaking to his followers, in the world you have tribulation. Same word. It's, it, it, is, it is commonly taught, I'm going to say at least in the American church, it is commonly taught that the tribulation is a seven-year period at the end of the age. Right before the second coming. Now, like I said, if I'm understanding the birth pains thing right, then... I, then I don't have a problem with that. There probably will be a time at the very end. Um, Daniel talks about it. 
The book of Revelation talks about it, um, where it gets really intense. Really intense. But also keep this in mind. If you were to go in many parts of the world tonight, let's say Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and you were to sit down with the Christians there and say, let me tell you about the future when there will be great tribulation. I think they could they could respond, brother, sister, let me tell you about the great tribulation we're suffering now. I mean, future? Future? That that would just be a foreign what what do you mean future? This is not tribulation? See, I some doctrines like that I, I come out of the American experience because we haven't known that kind of tribulation here. So we think it's like it's not happening around the world. So we read about it and say, okay, that's off out there in the future somewhere. Not for much of the world it's not. When Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, Christians in China know what He's talking about. The pastor in Iran who's on death row right now, he knows what Jesus is talking about. The other lady in Pakistan who was arrested for blaspheming Muhammad, she knows what Jesus was talking about. In the world, you have tribulation. In Sudan, where they're mutilating Christians, you going to tell them it's in the future? Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation. Paul said, it's through much tribulation that you enter the kingdom. Now, here, now. Jesus says, immediately, in the near future, they will deliver you up to tribulation. And everything he said there we see play out in the book of Acts. They will put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away. And so on. So the tribulation is now. It's now. Now, now I'm not saying, again, maybe there is going to be a seven-year period where it really intensifies at the end. But that's not the beginning of it. That'll be the beginning of the very end of it. The tribulation is now. And Christians aren't immune to it. I don't have time to go into all the details, but let me say one thing I'm not, okay? I'm not a dispensationalist. I don't find any place in the Bible where Christians are, in this world, protected from the hardship. Now, that's just part of the reason I'm not. Another part of the reason is because... When I, when I hear this, this Scripture speak, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not above being corrected here. Please don't misunderstand me. But this is where I'm at right now. When I hear the Scripture speak of what we are looking for, and this is part of what I was pointing at this morning, we are looking for one event, the return of Christ. His coming, His second coming. 
Everything I see here, it seems that Jesus is saying, you are going to be here for this. That's why he's telling us. So that when these things happen, we don't lose heart. So that when tribulation hits, we don't think, and and I'm not, like some of the Jews did, and I'm not trying to be, I mean, the horrific things the Jews went through in World War II. But a lot of times their response was, where is God? Where is God? And Jesus is telling us these things so that, so that we don't go there. So that we know this, this is exactly God's plan. The tribulation is coming. And Jesus says, those that endure to the end, to endure it, you've got to be in it. Those that endure to the end shall be saved. Think about the children of Israel in Egypt, for example, while God is pouring out his judgment on the land of Egypt. (laughs) I remember R.F. Gates saying this years ago. While God is pouring out his wrath on on the people of Egypt, at the same time, with the same circumstances, he's getting his people ready to leave out of there. He didn't take them out before he did the ten plagues. But in part... That got them ready to go, didn't it? I mean, they were ready to get out of there by the time all that was done. <laughs> uh, so, I'm simply saying this. We're in the tribulation. We're in it now. Now, I know that's hard for us as American 21st century Christians to realize. But again, I don't think it's hard at all for other Christians around the world to realize. We're in the tribulation now. Now, he, he does talk about, verse 21, there will be great tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. Again, there's two explanations for that, I think. One is, yes, that there's going to be this uh, seven-year period at the, at the end of time um, where the birth pains come to the climax. And that may be what he's referring to. So there's going to be a time of worldwide tribulation at that point where it's going to really intensify. Now, again, I don't, I don't find any evidence in the Scripture that the church is going to escape that. But it may be very well true that it's going to happen. That, I mean, that, that the tribulation is going to happen. Uh, a, a time of the, the great tribulation is going to happen. But another explanation is this. He may simply be talking about what is about to take place in Jerusalem. In other words, there will be great tribulation in Jerusalem. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever will be. We're answering that first question. When, when will this be that the temple is destroyed? And so he's talking about when it's going to be and what it's going to be like. A time of great tribulation like, like Jerusalem has never been through and never will, be, will go through again. And if you have any doubt about how horrible it was, read Josephus' account. It was a horrible, horrible time because they were under siege for a long time to the point that people were resorting to cannibalism within the city. You know, and I, well, I don't have that in front of me, but I'll be glad to show it to you. Josephus is easy to get a hold to. You can get a hold of his work at any bookstore. I have a copy if you want to look at it. Um, He's a first century Jewish historian 
and uh, and he gives some uh, some graphic detail of what went on during that time. It was a horrible, horrible time of tribulation for Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. So it may be that that's just what Jesus is talking about. In verse 22, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be safe. But for the elect, but for the sake of the elect, um, those days will be cut short. So whether, whether he, he's only talking about the destruction of Jerusalem or whether he's talking about that plus the church age and the great tribulation at the end of the church age, um, whatever all is included in this great tribulation, he assures us that he will spare the elect. That is his own people. Those days, if they weren't cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be cut short. They're going to be limited. So, if anyone says, verse 23, if anyone says, do you look, here is Christ, or there, there he is, do not believe it. He's, again, he's saying, don't, don't, don't go after other Christ. Uh, and I think he's, he's going back to that again because uh, they're thinking all of this is going to happen quickly. Jesus knows it's going to be over a long period of time. So he's saying, don't be deceived when others come along and say, look, here's Christ, there's Christ. Don't go after him. Don't follow him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I love that because you know what he's implying there? It's not possible. <laughs> it's not, not, not because we're so smart, but because he says, I've, I've got you in my hand and nobody can pluck you out. It's not possible. My sheep hear my voice. A stranger, they will not follow. Why? Because there's some smart sheep. No. It's because he's a good shepherd. And he's, he's not going to let us go after anybody else. So, he, he, the elect are safe. And again, why would he say those things if we're not going through the tribulation? He's giving assurance to his disciples that... You are going to go through it, and you are going to endure it, because I will cut it short for your sake. If it were possible, you'd be let. The, the deception is going to be so strong; people are going to be falling away. The love of many is going to wax cold because of the lawlessness that abounds. The deception is going to be so strong. The darkness is going to be so thick. That if it were possible, God's very elect would go astray. But it's not possible because of God's grace. Verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand. You see what he's doing? He says, I'm, I'm letting you know. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west. Now take note of this, brothers and sisters. This is what the second coming is going to be like. This is what I was referring to earlier. As far as I can tell from Scripture, we're looking for one event, and it's not a secret event. Everybody's going to know about it. Nobody's going to, ultimately, nobody's going to be left behind. I'll get to that in a moment. I know. You're going to say, well, it says over here. We'll get there in just a minute. Lord willing. I've got to try to move here. Um, so here's what it's going to look like. Verse 27. 
as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming. Remember, they said, what will be the sign of your coming, the parousia, and of the close of the age? Jesus says, oh, the sign's going to be, the sign's going to be so big and so bright, you're not going to miss it. Nobody's going to miss it. It's going to be like when the lightning shines from east to west. That's the way it's going to be in the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures were gathered. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. This is another reason I say, uh, I think, uh, when he talks about the birth pains, he's talking about a long process where the tribulation is, is always taking place, just like a woman in labor had, is having pains, but they become more frequent and they become more intense. And so the tribulation gets worse as we draw close, closer to the end. And so at the very end of the tribulation, at its worst, then, Jesus says, will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet, with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect. Paul talks about that also in, in Thessalonians. The Lord Himself shall descend with a shout and with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God. It's going to be loud. I'm telling you, it's no secret. That'd be a good title for a song, wouldn't it? It is no secret. But that's about something different. It's, it's going to be loud. Everybody's going to know it's happening. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect, that is his chosen, those whom he has saved, those whom he has what did, what did we just learn? Those whom He has preserved. Isn't that good? <laughs> the, the tribulation's not going to separate you from the love of Christ. The persecution not going to separate you. The deception not going to separate you from the love of Christ. That's the perseverance of the saints. So, he, he, those that endure to the end shall be saved. So, he, he says, there's going to be a trumpet call. I will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is it. This is the, the, the big finale. This is the, the final uh, gathering and judgment that he's describing in the next chapter, the end of the next chapter. So, verse 32. I think this is a simple illustration to make a simple point. <clears throat> Sometimes a fig tree is used uh, representative of the nation of Israel. I well remember I, Leslie and I uh, were saved in 1986. Mm, I, well, I well remember in 1988 especially because the nation of Israel was 40 years old and many people considered that to be a the end of a generation, and they took Jesus' words and they said, uh, you know, all of these things will come to, uh, you know, this generation will not pass away, that all of these things are fulfilled. And they said, okay, he's talking about this generation from 48 to 1988. 
And it's 1988. This is the end of the generation. Jesus is going to come back. And then they saw support for that in the fig tree thing. Learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches becomes tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that the end is near at the very gates. And so they said, well, obviously he's referring to the nation of Israel and it becoming a state again. It's bearing fruit. 1948, it became a nation again, a nation state. And it's, it's bearing fruit. So Jesus was saying there that when you see that happen in 1948, he's looking ahead, you know, 19,000, uh, 2,000 years. When you see that happen in 1948, you know the end is near. And that generation won't pass till all these things are fulfilled. The Son of Man, the sign of the Son of Man will appear and so forth. The end will come. Well, it didn't happen. I think he's giving a simple illustration to make a simple point. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches come, become tender and puts forth out its leaves, you know that summer is near. That is the illustration. You see a fig tree, or any tree for that matter, uh, pretty much, puts out its branches, you know that summer is near. So Jesus says, now, so also, when you see all these things, not the fig tree, not something that it represents, but all of these things that I've just talked about, when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So he's just making a simple point. You, you can tell when summer is near by the leaves on a tree. Now he says it's the same way. You can tell that the end is near by what I'm telling you here, by these things that I'm talking to you about. It's a simple analogy. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, see, there's one that makes it really tough. And why did he say that? <laughs> well, a, a full preterist view would say that everything Jesus spoke about here happened in the first century. I just have a real tough time with that because of... So, well, because of some of the things we just talked about that, that seem to me to be talking about the very end. Maybe it just has to do with some of the back and forth because he is, you know, at, at, it's, like I said, it seems to me some points he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Some points he's looking out to the end of the age. But and so maybe he's just letting them know here um, as far as the destruction of Jerusalem, this generation is not going to pass until it happens. It's going to happen in your lifetime, and it did. Maybe he's using the term generation just to, uh, to um, refer to a, a group of people. You know, Jesus said, uh, not Peter rather, Peter said we are a, a chosen generation. Use the same term to refer to all Christians. Oh, maybe, maybe Jesus is using it in that way. Maybe he, he's talking privately to the disciples, right? And maybe he's referring to them as a generation. And saying this generation is not going to pass. In other words, it would be like a, another way of saying the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The church is going to exist to the end of the age. 
I'll leave that one to you to decide, okay? <laughs> but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Again, this is key. We know this. Thought about this a lot back in 1988. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So, whoops, sorry. So he, he gives us signs that, that seem to say we can, we can have some sense of when it's drawing near. But he doesn't give us specifics. He doesn't give us a date. He doesn't even give us a year. So he says, nobody knows. So we know that, right? It's, it's not secret, but nevertheless, I mean, it's not going to be secret when it happens, but nevertheless, it's going to, it's going to catch some people off guard. So what he's saying is, don't be caught off guard. Because when, when it's going to happen, the date and the hour is a secret. When it manifests, when it happens, it won't be secret at that point, but it's going to be a surprise for a lot of people. Don't be caught off guard. Be looking for it. Be ready. That's what he's saying. And I think that's one of the main points of this passage. Be ready. My, my dad's told me a story. I don't know how many times. My, my grandfather was a, a pastor as well. And my dad's told me a story. I don't know how many times about complaining to his father because God doesn't let us know when we are going to die so that we can prepare for it. And he, he always tells me, my, my grandfather would always respond by saying, just be ready. That's good advice, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is saying here. Just be ready. Just be ready. Nobody knows the day or the hour. But one thing uh, we know, he says, it's going to be like the, in the days of Noah. Some people are going to be caught off guard. For as were in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days, verse 38, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. What's wrong with all that, by the way? Well, nothing necessarily. I, I think he's probably just saying that life was going on as normal. Of course, there's one problem with it that Noah was out there warning everybody. So, what everybody should have been doing was preparing for the flood. But they weren't. They were ignoring the preaching of Noah, and so life was just going on as normal. And they were caught totally off guard. They were totally, you know, living for the now, let's say. Living for the day. And so, again, verse 38, For as in the days of Noah before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, listen to this very closely. Verse 39, again, and then I'm going to read down a little further. Listen very closely to what Jesus says. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day our Lord is coming. Now, his main point there, and in the uh, illustration he's about to give, the parable he's about to give, 
um, master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, right? His main point there is just be ready. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be caught unaware. And he says that's what happened to them in Noah's day. They were, they were unaware until what happened? Until the flood came, right? Again, it was no secret. When it happened, everybody knew it was happening. They were swept away. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Who did the flood sweep away? Who? The ones who weren't prepared. The ones that were taken away. The ones that were taken away were the ones who were unprepared. The unbelievers. Now listen to what Jesus said. Verse 39. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Now he says, that's just the way it's going to be when I return. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. Now, in his illustration with Noah, who was taken? The unbelievers. The unbelievers were taken. That was the judgment. They were taken away. He says, just gonna, it's going to be just like that when the Son of Man returns. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay away, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, the reason I point that out is because usually the way that's interpreted is the ones who are taken are the Christians. And he's talking about the rapture, but there's no mention here. Of any secret rapture. He's talking about his return when he comes back in judgment. And he'll, he'll expound on that more in the next chapter, which we won't have time for tonight, but let's, let's wrap this up here. So he's, he's exhorting us to be ready. Stay away. Therefore, you also must be ready. That's verse 444. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Now, what is all this about? Now, look at what Jesus, how Jesus finishes this part out. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. He's saying, be about your master's business. He's given us stuff to do. When he comes back, he should find us doing it. Again, if you were at the men's meeting yesterday morning, obedience is always a part of salvation. Biblical salvation includes obedience. There is no, there is no uh, saviorship, if I can say it that way, without lordship. You, you, you cannot accept Christ as Savior unless you accept Him as Lord. And Lord means He is in charge of your life. He calls the shots. So He says, here's what you do, and we do it. You you can't have Him as Savior without Him being Lord, because because He is Lord. So if, if you're imagining a Savior over here who will save you without being your Lord, you're conjuring up your own Savior. 
That's not the Jesus of the Bible. He is Lord. So he says, a faithful servant will be the one whom when he returns, he finds him doing what he's been instructed to do. Blessed is that servant, verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants, eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour. He does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. Now, note that. That's, that's what I was trying to set up this morning. The scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus called hypocrites. And they were professing servants, but they were not doing. In fact, they refused to do the will of the one they called Master, God of Abraham. And he said to them, just like he says here, judgment is coming. Your house is left to you desolate. Judgment is coming. Remember what I said this morning? The, the essence of true religion is love for God. The evidence of true religion is love for man, fellow human beings. That's exactly what the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, they weren't manifesting any of that. They didn't love God. They didn't love their fellow man. That's what you see portrayed here. The master of that servant will come. Uh, he finds his servant beating his fellow servants. The Pharisees were oppressing the people with their false religion. He will find them beating their fellow servants and, and eating and drinking with drunkards. They were not in submission to the will of God. So they face judgment. He will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the main point, and let's don't lose this, the main point, I've given you a lot of, several things there, I don't know how many, but I've given you several things there that you might take a different view on. But the main point is Jesus saying, He's coming back. He's coming. Be ready. Be ready. Be the servant that is doing his will. Any questions? Boy, I really, I, I hope that y'all don't think that I, I, I take your patience for granted. Um, I appreciate your patience. And uh, we'll be done here in a couple hours. But no, I'm, I'm kidding. But <laughs> don't throw anything. Any questions? Right. God is gracious. He tells us these things in advance uh, so that we know He's in charge. He's in control. Everything is working out according to His plan for our good, for His glory. Let's pray. Uh, Ronnie McCart, you mind leading us in a word of prayer?
This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.